Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this first episode of 2024, I talk again with the one and only Joe Grunfist, the William A. Frankie Professor of Law and Business Emeritus at Stanford Law School and Senior Faculty of the Rock Center for Corporate Governance. Joe's a former commissioner of the SEC. He co-founded Financial Engines with Professor William Sharp, the 1990 Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he formerly served as a director of KKR and of the Oracle Corporation. Joe was my inaugural guest for this podcast back in 2020. He was my one-year anniversary guest in 2021, and last year I brought him back to wrap up 2022 and provide an outlook for 2023. In this podcast, we review 2023 and talk about corporate governance trends for this coming year. Among other topics, we discuss the Silicon Valley Bank and the banking crisis of 2023, the current state and future of private markets and unicorns, the growth of AI and the open AI boardroom crisis, including some geopolitical concerns, the fate of crypto and its regulation, and the increasing politicization of ESG and DEI, and how should boards address these concerns. We also talk about his biggest winner and loser in business of 2023, the biggest business surprise from last year, the best and worst corporate governance trends from last year, and the biggest corporate governance trend to watch out for in this coming year. As a personal note, I should add that last year I published 40 podcast episodes, so I look forward to more great conversations this year. As I wrote in my first newsletter of the year last week, in each episode, I aim to bring you the most insightful discussions, expert opinions, and the latest trends shaping the future of boardrooms. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly appreciate your listening and support of this podcast. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod or you can subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. The Boardroom Governance Podcast is sponsored by the American College of Governance Council. The ACGC is a professional association of lawyers and academics in the U.S. and Canada, widely recognized for the expertise and achievements in the field of corporate governance. The ACGC was founded by some of the most prominent U.S. corporate governance lawyers, and today the organization includes over 150 practitioners and academics. The ACGC's mission is to promote a high level of professional standards among governance lawyers along with a better understanding and broader adoption of best practices within business organizations. You should check out their website at amgovcollege.org. That is A-M-G-O-V-C-O-L-L-E-G-E dot org. Joe, how are you doing 2024? We have a bit of a tradition of having you talk about at the beginning of the year of some of the governance trends from the prior year and what's coming next. So I'm really happy to see you again. It's great to have you. It's terrific. And, you know, if you want to know how things are going, it's really very simple. Personally, I am thriving. I am crushing it. My family is doing great. My portfolio is up. The rest of the world sucks. (laughs) The, the, The rest of the world, unbelievable mess. Good. Well, good no, for you. it's not good. Well, I was going to say good for you. Fine, but you know, <laughs> you can't ignore that. So obviously, there's so many things going on in the governance world, and and I'm trying to set a few issues where we can go deep. And the first one 
was perhaps the biggest story of 2023, which is the banking crisis involving the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, Silvergate, Signature Bank. It was a big moment. And the question to you is, what are some of the lessons, particularly for board members, that we should uh, take from that crisis? And the second one is, will Silicon Valley recover from it since Silicon Valley Bank was such a big part of the ecosystem? They funded about 50% of the venture-backed companies. And so that's the second part of the question. But let's go back into this crisis. For those that haven't seen it, you have a video from Stanford where you shortly after the crisis go through some of these issues. So here we are in January of 2024. What can we take away from this? Well, Evan, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to challenge your assumption. Okay. Your assumption is, all right, your assumption is that Silicon Valley Bank and that banking crisis, that was the big event. Right. I think it was a big event, but I think the big event is, is, you know, the thing I love saying, which is real stupidity beats artificial intelligence every time. Yeah. And, and, you know, this banking crisis, we know how to deal with it. We can get our arms around it. We know what the implications are and we'll talk about that. But the stuff that's happening with artificial intelligence most directors have absolutely no idea where to begin, how to approach dealing with it, governance implications, greater implications for the electoral system, for society and the like. So I agree that the challenge to the financial system and to the VC infrastructure was very large, but I think we know how to manage this on a going forward basis, not perfectly, but the challenges presented by AI are far more foundational. Now, with that little bit of obstreperous conduct by your guests. And by the way, I do agree with what you said. I just was going by chronological order of the year. So we will talk about AI. I just wanted to go and tackle this uh, banking crisis first. All right, so number one, you need to put this problem in context. There's a level at which what happened was totally unprecedented. And the piece that was unprecedented is the rate at which money moved out of Silicon Valley Bank. All right. Mm -hmm. The prior situation, you had about $10 billion leave in 16 days. Silicon Valley Bank, you had $41 billion leave lickety split. Nobody had ever seen that. All right. Nobody had ever planned for that. All right. So that's number one. All right. Number two. By the way, that was about $4.2 billion per hour or $1 million per second. So it, that rate was enormous. Exactly. And what we have to understand is that in today's modern world, capital flight of uninsured deposits will move that quickly. And the regulators were not prepared for that. The bank, the board of directors was not prepared for that. And, you know, to the extent it winds up in litigation, everybody's going to be able to say, who knew? The other thing. What, if anything, have we heard about this litigation? I remember when you talked in your presentation, there were a lot of parties potentially involved. There were derivative actions, there were ACC, other banking regulators. Have you heard of anything that has moved along these lines? Very little. Mm. Very little. And I think what people are beginning to appreciate is what you would be able to see if you looked at that video that we did at the Rock Center which is mm -hmm. your, your initial impression of where was the board? How could it, if you stop and if you look at the details, 
it's much more nuanced and it's much more complicated. So, so getting the kind of perspective that a litigator would have on these situations really helps you inform how you should look at it from a governance perspective as well. And let me drill down on that. There were experts everywhere here. And, you know, I don't know what specifically happened. I have no inside information. But the way this typically is structured is you have experts advising the board and the CEO. And there's sort of a zone in which the experts will say you can exercise discretion within this zone. If you go outside this zone, we got a problem. It's my guess, and this is nothing more than a conjecture, that everybody stayed within the zone that the experts said, yeah, this is okay. Now, in hindsight, turns out it was wrong, all right? Turns out you miscalculated this, you miscalculated that, you miscalculated the other thing. But the board will always likely have as a defense, we had an outsider look at it and they said it was fine. So, so it's going to be really complicated to point fingers and say, this is what the board actually did wrong and has to be liable for. That said, there are huge lessons to be learned, including mm-hmm. you better be smarter than your experts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you think there is any implication that is still lingering for regional banks the thought was that at the time, these were just the beginning of a few collapses, particularly of the smaller, medium-sized banks, and what has happened since then. And obviously, we, we have talked before about the implication of the interest rates change, and it's almost everything uh, about that and how the Fed kind of uh, moved the needle here. Look, so still... where do you stand with the regional banks? Well, So look, as a practical matter... If you have where you're at now is if you've got a regional bank and you're not worried about any crossover effects, whether they're systemic or not, that's that's a separate battle. All right. You know, would you find that the effect is systemic and you come in and you wind up insuring everybody? You know, people are now smarter. Uh, depositors are smarter. Uh, the you know, the data, you know, I haven't looked at them lately, but I bet you they would show significant changes in terms of the allocation of uninsured deposits, that those are now all with the big money setter banks, or not all, much more with the big money setter banks, uh, and that the too big to fail phenomenon or the too systemic to fail phenomenon is more powerful today than ever before. So if you're half intelligent in terms of how you structure your banking activities, um, you you basically have a de facto government guarantee well beyond two hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, also, there are interesting fintech startups that are now in the business of saying, "Give us ten million dollars, and we know how to allocate the ten million dollars two fifty here, two fifty there, two fifty there, and you wind up, you know, getting very good rates and in federal insurance, uh, and you don't have to worry about that." So, you know, the market is responding. And as you suggested, the real dominant factor here is not the balance sheet of the banks. It's the rate at which interest rates have increased, mm. which is essentially unprecedented in, in modern U.S. history. And that's, and that's, you know, crushed many of the startups, you know, separate and apart from the fact that Silicon Valley Bank and Republic Bank, you know, are being restructured, have been restructured. Yeah. 
So let's move into into the private markets because we live here in, in Silicon Valley where uh, all these entrepreneurs and startups uh, are, are the life and blood of the ecosystem. A lot of talk has been around these unicorns. There are about 1,200 unicorns, depending on how you count them. Globally, in the US, it may be between 700 no, no, and 900. No, 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 no. Okay. The, the, the verb you used was there are. The correct verb is there were. <laughs> okay, let me get there. Let me get there, right? Okay. So some say, right, that there's going to be about a 40% amount of shutdowns, meaning these companies, these unicorns are going to become unicorpses or zombie corns. 50% of them are going to be marked down. That could go anywhere between 50 and 80%. And then only 10% may have app rounds. Now, those are just estimates uh, we don't know yet. And as you kind of hinted, where's the shakeout going to happen? And, and how much do you think they're going to survive this downturn and are we out of this yet? Uh, the short answer is we're not out of it. There's a tremendous amount of denial uh, that's going on. Uh, and, you know, the denial in a certain sense is, is rational, that you've got people, you know, the founder saying, look, we've got a great idea. We've got a great company. We really have no choice other than to talk the game and say, we're going to be able to survive. and We'll be able to get through it. When the reality is the business model no longer works with the cost of capital being as high as it is now. Uh, and you've got the VCs looking at all of this stuff going, you know, we're not going to throw good money after bad. Uh, you know, the companies that I talk to, I say, look, there's a real simple metric. Okay. If you can get to cash flow positive with the money you have in the bank now, as painful as that might be in terms of layoffs and what else you need to do in order to get there. Hold your nose, do it. Give up your vision, give up your growth, because the first thing you got to do is survive. All right, so that's number one. Mm. Number two, if you can raise another round, all right, you, you have to be able to tell people, we get the cash flow positive with the next X million, be ready to take a down round. If you're not mm. going to get to cash flow positive with your next round, good luck. Right, you're probably toes up. Um, you know that that's the simple math of discounted cash flow, all right, and of the extent to which prices have been crushed for many companies in the publicly traded market. Yeah, the data that I just recently saw is there were three thousand two hundred shutdowns of venture backed companies in twenty three. They had raised about $27 billion, and that is probably undercounting, and that's from PitchBook. Yeah. The other data is $170 billion have been raised by startups in the U.S. in 23. That's down about 50% from the 2021 year, which was a, a massive year, right? And only $66 billion have been raised by venture funds. So all the metrics in the VC ecosystem seem down. and. I say this, and now we get into AI, because AI is the saving grace of all this ecosystem. About $50 billion were raised just on AI. So here we go into this market that is still in 21, parting like 9099, right? Yeah. you know, And, and the other thing that's really interesting is lots of companies, many companies that I've seen that aren't really AI companies are now trying to pitch <laughs> them. Yeah, it's what I call the AI. 
pixie right. dust. All right. If we can right. sprinkle some AI pixie dust on our, our, our Joe, this is the same as when it was dot com, when it was crypto, right? There's always these waves of the hot new thing. And people use this, right? Like the now it's AI. That's why I love the pixie dust phrase. I never have to lose it. I just have to have a different modifier. <laughs> what flavor pixie dust are we talking about now? Uh, but this is not pixie dust. I mean, for the real AI companies, look, this market is segmented. What you have is the fundamental plays that are really open only to people that can write multi-billion dollar checks. That's not for you and me. It's also not for your typical VC. Mm -hmm. They will come along as a small player. That's a game for the Googles. That's a game for the Microsofts, for the Apples, if you're going to do the basic models. The opportunities for the traditional VCs are basically in the smaller niche verticals where you wind up taking the AI models, you apply them to a very specific business case. Uh, ideally, in some situations, you have proprietary data. You can train very specialized models over these proprietary data. Uh, you may have some additional algorithmic capabilities that you add on to the off-the-shelf models or the models that you're paying for, and away you go. And, you know, that'll do stuff like medical records and diagnostics and uh, uh, doing legal brief writing. Uh, and there you go. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a remarkable future if the hallucinations don't kill you. You know, I, I was just, I'm about to publish my uh, first newsletter of the year, and I was reviewing my notes from January of 23. At the time, OpenAI was valued at $26 billion, and, a, and that was double the number of 21, and people were saying how crazy that was. Well, here we are, and people are saying now it's going to be a $100 billion uh, fundraise, their next raise. There's a tender offer that's going to I think closed this week at $86 billion. So only OpenAI has been uh, tripled in value in one year. But they did have probably, again, and I'm going to use this phrase, the biggest governance story of uh, the year. There was a, a debacle, a fiasco, five days of just incredible news around what was going on in the board. They ousted Sam Altman as CEO. He, in a matter of five days, was back. It was incredible in part because of this happening on a Friday afternoon. There was a vote of no confidence by the board. Then uh, resignations happened and employees really backed Sam Altman. They write this letter signed by 90% plus of the employees threatening the board to say, if you don't bring him back, we're all moving to Microsoft. At the same time, Satya Nadella, the CEO of, of Microsoft, is saying, we're going to have you, love to get you back here on board. Whatever you think you want to do, we'll do. And so the board resigns and you got new members on the board. But I read somebody saying that this was the biggest board fiasco or ouster since Steve Jobs in 1985. And I want to get your opinion here on how did you see this case going and Clearly, there's also something to be said about the structure of OpenAI being this nonprofit that controls a cap profit model. Give me let, let let's start with that impression. What do you think about the whole board fiasco, and where do we go from here? Well, look, the the problems are generic with the structure. Well, 
The fundamental problem is with the idea that you can achieve what OpenAI wanted to achieve in terms of guardrails. We'll get to that. That's the fundamental problem. Mm -hmm. The second problem is the structure. The structure was all wrong. And the third problem was the people. These were the wrong people to be serving on these boards with the wrong structure, seeking an objective that can't be obtained. Otherwise, everything's fine. <laughs> okay? So let's start with the futility of the objective. This is supposed to be for the benefit of humanity, right? What the hell does that mean? You know, Joe, you know well, what? I mean, we talked about this in our last... But, Joe, we talked about this, and I remember talking to you, and, and I said... Joe, have you reviewed the OpenAI governance? And I said there were fiduciary duties owed to humanity. And we came to the same conclusion. And you were like, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah, so listen. When I was a grad student in economics, one of the areas that I really loved is this very mathematical space that's, that's called public choice theory. And one of the fundamental findings in that is, <laughs> to quote the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want. And there's a great paper by- it's Good quote, good quote. It's a good quote. And there's, yeah. and there's a great paper by Ken Arrow, which is the primary reason he won the Nobel Prize. That's an impossibility theorem. And what it says is, if you want certain values, all right, and you know, non-dictatorship, irrelevance of all certain alternatives, yeah, I don't need to get into the math. He proves that it's impossible to have that. Well, it's not much of a stretch. In fact, it's not a stretch at all to go from Arrow's impossibility theorem to explaining to all of the... It, it, the intentions are fantastic behind... Let's assume the intentions are fantastic mm -hmm. behind open AI. And they really do want to have this for the benefit of humanity. We don't know what that means, and we cannot write a formula that says, here are the algorithmic control. And, and that's, that's even if everybody agreed on what you wanted to do. You just can't. It's, it's just preposterous because the idea that even American society, let's just stick with American society and let's not go to other cultures. The idea that American society could agree on what the benefit of humanity is, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We can't even agree on how to avoid, you know, a government shutdown. And we're going to agree on what's the benefit of humanity? All right. Now, there's certain things that we can agree on, like, gee, you know, AI shouldn't go around killing everybody. Okay. But once you get beyond some really basic precepts, give me a break. So, you know, the first thing is, if you set out to do something that's impossible, you're likely going to fail. So that, that's, that's where this is. All right. So that, that's sort of like number one. So you have an objective. The objective is almost impossible to define and impossible to implement. And then you set up a structure that isn't well suited to the objective, even if you could achieve the objective. And the structure that they had is they had a nonprofit board, which was really in control of the business. There's a much smarter and better way to do it. You have a nonprofit board with people who understand, in some sense, 
what the benefit to humanity is, and at least you know they've got something that is that, that's sort of like here's the best we can do, all right? Because that, that's mm-hmm. the farthest you're going to get. And then you have a separate board of a for-profit entity that actually knows how to run a damn business, and you structure it so that the directors of the not-for-profit control with a hundred percent authority who serves on the board of the for-profit entity. And if the board of the for-profit entity ever does something that the not-for-profit disagrees with, they can fire the board immediately. They have full observer rights. And the board of the for-profit would then know that if they ever want to do something controversial, they better check with the not-for-profit. If we do this, are we all going to get fired? And if the not-for-profit says, yeah, that's a good way to get canned. Then go, okay, we're not going to do that. So that way, you have de facto control of the for-profit by the not-for-profit, and you're able to get a skill mix that you need for the operational AI, and you're able to compensate them appropriately, and you actually have a functioning organization. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because there are signs of foundations in Europe that are run this way, right? Nonprofits that have a structure in that way. There are other, uh, Anthropic being one that has this long-term benefit trust structure. So if anything, we're seeing some innovation in governance uh, and corporate structures around these AIs under the benefit of humanity of this very important AI technology that is going to rule our lives. And so for some of us who are involved in governance, it's interesting to see these developments. And some people have gotten terribly wrong, but others may get something right. It's unclear to me at this stage. Yeah. And, and, and look, the other problem, the other, the other reason why it's unobtainable is Open AI and Anthropic don't have a monopoly on the really smart AI people. Mm. All right, guess what? There are a whole bunch of Chinese that know how to do this too. Mm. And they're not operating with these guardrails. Mm. And their their mission is not to run AI for the benefit of humanity. They've got a different objective function. Or if they also have the same objective function for the benefit of humanity, their definition of benefit of humanity is different from ours. So- Let me ask you about that because that's a great point you just made. And, and it, another big issue that's happened all year is this geopolitics and China versus US. But in this technology race, China was very advanced, very advanced. The, the tech companies were very big, if not bigger than the US companies. But suddenly you have Xi Jinping, who's the president of China saying, wait a minute, we don't want these tech founders to have so much power. And in this country and in this regime, it's the state that has the power. And it's going to be interesting to see how this race evolves when now the mantra is de-risking or decoupling. And that has a whole new set of implications for companies in both countries. Listen, this is this is a whole separate... Mm-hmm session for your podcast. China's in a lot of trouble. China's in a lot of trouble, and most people do not understand that. Demographically, 
all right? The, the, <laughs> the population is going to collapse. The economic issues that that creates are going to be significant. But let's, let's stay on AI. Xi Jinping is going to want very sophisticated AI, but only for very specific purposes. You're not going to get a chatbot that you can talk to about the news. That, that will not happen. Okay. You will get AI where they're going to try to figure out who's likely to be a dissident. Okay. There, there will be all sorts of intrusive uses of AI. All right. Uh, tracking people, all sorts of stuff. Right. And what's intriguing is when the Chinese say we want to use AI for the benefit of humanity, they actually will authentically believe that what they're doing is for the benefit of humanity, even though it would be anathema mm. to the people running open AI and vice versa. Yeah. No, I think that's going to be something to follow closely this year. But let's let's move into another topic that you and I have had a conversation for many years now, which is crypto. Last year, uh, the crypto, the total market cap was really down to $850 billion. This is down from a high of $3 trillion, but there's been a rebound. And today, it's about $1.6 trillion. Bitcoin is about $44,000, Ethereum $2,200. There seems to be some level of recovery in the crypto markets after about two years of kind of this winter. And the question still remains the industry's regulation and, you know, where do you see this? Uh, and maybe also uh, if we can comment on the SEC's case against XRP and, and how that played out and what the implications for securities regulation in crypto assets. Look, so a couple of observations. An increasing number of governments, I think, are going to wind up coming down harder on crypto in the future than has. Mm -hmm. You simply look at the fact that, that the North Koreans are making a pile of money in this space. You look at how easy it is to use these crypto transactions uh, to fund things that the West isn't very fond of. So that makes it a very easy prediction to say that everything is going to vector in a direction that has tightening implications for the crypto market. And people say, gee, the government can't regulate, you know, how crypto works. Well, in a certain sense, it can't. But governments can regulate the choke points where fiat currency goes into or comes out of the crypto system. Uh, and, and, you know, governments need to learn better how to do this, but they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll get there. They'll get there. And and what can you tell us about the the win of XRP and and that litigation uh, with the SEC? A couple of things. Number one, you might you might want to be careful extending the XRP precedent to other situations. You know, because mm -hmm. look at FTX, look at Binance. All right, uh, you have many more situations. Let's put it this way: the amount of capital reflected in the FTX and the Binance situation is much larger than XRP. And it's not hard to distinguish XRP and its defense from many other situations that are in the marketplace today. So in other words, XRP can still win in its litigation 
and lots of other crypto operations would still lose bigly. Do you think there's something to say about the U.S. being a innovator in this space versus other regions and based on, on regulation? Or is this uh, something that you think is more of the industry parlance? Because I say this because a lot of the industry experts kind of are leaving the U.S. or it's yeah. not a friendly uh, place. The U.S. is not a friendly jurisdiction. When people used to call me for advice in this space, one of my primary forms of advice was stay out of the United States mm. and do it authentically. Do geolocationing. If something you know winds up coming in in a VPN, you don't know where it's from, then don't do business with them. And nobody took my advice because that would cut their revenues down and they wanted their revenues to go up. So you know, many people would, you know, they'd listen to me and they'd go off and they would, you know, do their thing. Because if they took my advice, they wouldn't get the growth rights, uh, but they wouldn't violate the law. Mm. So the trade that they made was, gee, if I have to violate the law in order to get the growth rate that I want, okay, I'll violate the law. Now now they're going to pay the consequences for that. You know, talking on, on a bit of a side note, for the first time we're seeing founders or some of these entrepreneurs actually in jail. So Elizabeth Holmes I think has a 11-year uh, sentence. Uh, uh, Trevor Milton uh, was just sentenced to four years, and others are getting sanctioned. Do you think there is some different context towards the DOJ and the SEC going after these frauds in private markets, or is it just uh, that these companies are now so much bigger that they would have been public in any other context? No, I look, fraud is a fraud. Whether it happens mm -hmm. in a publicly traded company or a privately held firm, a fraud is a fraud, and the government is doing the right thing, in my view, going after all of these crooks. And, and mm -hmm. you know, in the crypto space, there are so many more crooks to go after. It is mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we talked about this last year, and there's been a bit of a clean-out, but I don't think it's the end either. All right. Another topic that is huge in governance is being the politicization of ESG. And this backlash that has been happening for the last two or three years is now strongly expanded into uh, what people refer as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've seen Supreme Court rulings. We've seen now presidents of universities having to resign. But it's also uh, something that now has become a very hot political issue how do you think directors should think about DEI and ESG? Let's separate, or we could put it together. But where do you think these trends are going to go into in this uh, year, 2024, where there's elections? And, and now there's a massive politicization of corporate governance, where before this wasn't such the case. Here's the reality, and, nobody, and very few people, especially in a university environment, like hearing this reality. This is a situation mm -hmm. where less is more, where the dominant thinking among most directors and CEOs is, I don't want to say anything about DEI. I don't want to say anything about ESG unless I have to. And given what's happened to directors and CEOs who've gotten out in front of these issues, either pro or con, 
has taught many other CEOs and directors, rightly or wrongly, to shut up. All right? Uh, I'm not going to say anything about DEI unless I have to. I'm not going to say anything about ESG unless I have to. That's the dominant vector in the corner office and in boardrooms today. And I know many people who really don't like that, but I can certainly explain to them why there's a view that that's the right thing for a person with a fiduciary obligation to a corporation, why that's the right path to follow. Stay in the foxhole. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, obviously there are people who, who don't like that approach and, and saying that that by itself is a stance, right? Not saying anything is a stance. And and I agree now it's such a political uh, hot button that I find it interesting as well that you have people like Bill Ackman who uh, have been very vocal uh, in the university sense and using his activist you know, chops in the university setting. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is the university governance issue is now very similar to mm. corporate governance issue. And it's really astounding to me. It's not really astounding because the, the arrogance that we have in the university environment is really almost infinite. Uh, how little many of these university boards and presidents have learned from executives of publicly traded corporations. This, this is an mm. area, you know, universities like thinking, hey, corporations can learn from us. They should be more like us. You know, that's not always 100% right, Bobby. That's not. Yeah, I, I, I was reading, and I think it was from Bill Ackman, that like Harvard, the board of directors of the Harvard Corporation dates from like 1650, or it's like the oldest board that there is in the United States, predates the United States. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, right. But the question isn't how old it is. The question is right. How, how <laughs> well suited is it to address mm -hmm. the current problems? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move into the rapid fire questions, Joe. Okay. What is the biggest winner in business, in your opinion, in 2023? This is easy. You're you're not gonna. You, 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 this is gonna be a surprise to you, but this is easy. <laughs> okay. Taylor Swift. Ah, the, the, uh, listen, the amount of money she made by making people happy, mm -hmm. all right, is just spectacular. Who else made that amount of money by making people happy? It was not Elon Musk at X, all right? <laughs> Taylor Swift, yeah. by that metric, crushes Elon Musk, leaves Elon Musk in the dust, which is where he belongs compared to Taylor Swift. I like that choice. Uh, Listen, all right. Have you listened so to Taylor who is, Swift? You know, not much. I've got to tell honest. you, I am getting, look, I am not her demographic, <laughs> trust me, but I am starting to listen to her and I am blown away. Listen to the man. Are you a Swifty now? I Joe? am now a Swifty. I am the world's oldest, <laughs> baldest Swifty. Okay. Uh, but okay. I got to tell you something. My niece, all right, I, I went to my niece and said, hey, look, I, Tell me about this. Explain. She said, Joe, Uncle Joe, first thing. By the way, I'm, I'm not just Uncle Joe. I'm evil Uncle Joe. So, uh -huh. oh, yeah, it's a long story. I've worked very hard to get that name. 
So she goes, evil Uncle Joe. I go, yeah. She says, listen to the man. So I listen to the man, look at the lyrics. Fantastic. It is the most honest expression of the frustration that women encounter dealing with people like you and me. All right? <laughs> no, really. It was wonderful. I, I felt liberated listening to that. It was so you that. went to a concert? Or just listening? No, no. You went to a concert? I did not go to a concert. I should have. I regret. Okay. I re the next time she does an era's tour or something like that, I'll be the bald 80-year-old guy sitting <laughs> up front, having paid for the tickets through my nose, cheering. All right. Go. Good. So flip side, who was the biggest loser in business in 23? That is as easy as the biggest winner. Sam Bankman-Fried. All right. The, the idea of getting arrested and convicted and so quickly, all right, it's, it's just remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And, and, you know, and to testify before a New York jury and to say more than 140 times, I don't remember, I don't recall, if there's a better way to piss off a bunch of New York jurors than saying 140 times, I don't know, I don't know mm. what it is. So what, what is your prediction in terms of how long he's going to serve? And what do you think of the uh, DOJ dropping the second count? So num number one, I am not going to answer that question for a very mm -hmm. strategic reason. I have a bunch of bets with people okay. about how long the sentence is going to be. And the bets are, if it comes in, at a certain number or below, I owe the other person some California Cabernet. <laughs> if it comes in above the over-under, I get either a Barolo or Brunello because I need to restock the Italian section of my wine <laughs> cellar. I am going to be swimming in Brunello. I am looking at the 2010 Beyond Santi, which is very, very nice. Okay, I expect to get cases of that stuff sent to me because Sam is going away longer than my counterparties expect. And I'm not giving mm. away my number because I got more bets to make. I got more Brunello that's coming at me. Right. Okay. So, so a long, long sentence. A any, any thoughts on the DOJ dropping the second uh, yeah. set of trial counts? Yeah, because what they did is they told the judge, look, we're not going to try him on this, but when you sentence him, you're allowed to look at all of this other bad stuff all right, mm. which is only going to add to the sentence, which means more Brunello or Barolo for me. Okay. All right. Uh, what was the biggest business surprise of 2023? That's also going to surprise you. But once I okay. see you go, I get it. I, let me phrase this properly. How stupid Bibi Netanyahu is that he totally misunderstood Hamas's business model, that he wasn't able to keep track of what was going on, and fundamentally misunderstood his competitor in the marketplace. All right? So if you talk about business surprise, all right, that, that you know, you can look at it as a military surprise, but the military surprise really came about because BB got the business model wrong. And it was a deep, fundamental, and profound mistake that he made. 
Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I, I'm not that deep into Israeli politics. Obviously, he was going through a bunch of internal politics, and Israel inside was, you know, a, a, in a big dispute. And maybe that sidetracked him from the bigger picture and threats from the outside. No, I think it compounded. It, it, it's it's a longer conversation and topic for a separate podcast. But you yeah. know, the evidence is clear. They knew about the plans. They thought that they couldn't be pulled off, uh, and that is entirely consistent with something that's called confirmation bias, that you believe what you want to believe because it's too uncomfortable to believe that you're wrong. So, you know, that that is part of, you know, you said biggest business surprise that he got that wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think the yeah. institutions were, in a certain sense, biased and prejudged because for them to get it right they would have to go to their boss and they would say, you know, your fundamental philosophy is wrong. And if you go and you say that to Netanyahu, you get fired. So so when you stop and you think about organizational dynamics, it, you know, once, once Netanyahu made his fundamental business strategy mistake, all right, the ability for the military error to occur and perpetuate is compounded. Yeah. You know, that leads me to to say the biggest surprise period that I had 2023 is the resurgence of anti-Semitism around the world, and particularly in the US, where I had never experienced it that way, and that is a very worrying trend. Topic for a separate podcast, but it doesn't yeah. surprise me as much. But then again, I'm older than you are. <laughs> okay. All right, best and worst corporate governance trends from 2023. What are your picks? All right, your, which one do you want to start with? Let's start with the worst and then the best. The worst is artificial intelligence and the best is artificial intelligence. Hmm, explain. I can't. I, let me go to my chatbot and get an explanation. <laughs> no, 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 no. ChatGPT4. Really no, it's really, the upside of AI is absolutely spectacular. This could turn into the best thing that we've seen in a long, long, this could be the best thing since penicillin, all right? Uh, and then it could also turn out to be the worst thing since, I don't know, fill in the blank. All right. Uh, and it's easy to map out these different paths and it's easy to map out a path where AI simultaneously does a lot of good and does a lot of harm, which is which is my bet that, you know, as we look at this five years from now, we'll say, isn't it great that the accuracy of mammogram interpretations has been increased and we've saved so many women's lives by earlier and more accurate uh, diagnosis. And at the same time, we have more deep fakes and you never know what's really true anymore. And when you wind up voting for someone, you really have no idea who it is you're voting for. Mm. But both will uh, likely be true at the same time. We'll have to revisit that in 2029, and we'll go back to this and see where where it happened. Uh, okay, final question for you then. What's the biggest corporate governance trend to watch out for in 2024? It's what I call the pinata that the corporation now winds up being a pinata and you've got the left with a big stick, all right, whacking at it from the left. You've got the right with the big stick 
whacking at it from the right. And meanwhile, the piñata is going, hey, look, I'm just trying to run a business over here. Mm. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, that's not a hard prediction to make. That's, that's already happening. And, you know, when I talk to directors and they complain about it, I go, welcome to the piñata party and you're the piñata. They're not happy to hear it, but they do understand the accuracy of the description. Okay. Well, on that piñata note, uh, Joe, thank you so much for talking to me again for the Boardroom Governance Podcast. It's always great to get your thoughts and takeaways for the year and from last year. Hopefully, we'll have a better year, 24, although it seems like your portfolio is, is, is so, doing well. <laughs> so listen, here's my prediction for next year. Okay. AI will advance to the point where not only will there be a Grundfest chatbot mm -hmm. who is able to answer questions, all right, as Grundfest would, there will even more nefariously be an Epstein chatbot mm. that will be able to ask the questions and your chatbot will interrogate my chatbot. Oh, And then do all that. of the yeah. other chatbots can listen to our chatbot. There you go. That's we'll have my to feed... Next feed year. all my podcast episodes and all your responses and they'll recreate it and they won't know absolutely. if it's us or if it's an ai absolutely you see it's not very hard to do yeah okay all right joe have a great rest of the day we'll talk soon and by hopefully. the way it, yeah by the way if you think you are actually talking to joe grinfest <laughs> and not the grinfest chatbot I got something else to tell you well i hope it's not the evil one it's the good one right like maybe we don't know which one we get no, the good. Let me tell you something. The accurate chatbot is the evil Uncle Joe chatbot. <laughs> okay. All right, we All got right. it. This is this. You know, you know, GPT Chat GPT. The G is for Grinfest. <laughs> good one. All right. GPT. All right, Joe. Talk soon. You got Thank it. you. Bye. Be well. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod. You can check out all the details related to this podcast at the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.